Hello and welcome to the Chorus in the Chaos podcast. My name is Jack and I am, as always, joined by Grayson, but we have a very, very special guest today. Dr. Mark Jones uh, is joining us. And as we continue our trek through season two, looking at common struggles of the Christian life, um, I was uh, became aware of a book that, that Dr. Jones released uh, in, end of last year uh, called The Pilgrim's Regress, Guarding Against Backsliding and Apostasy in the Christian Life. And as we were Thinking about topics for for this uh, for this season, you know, the, the thinking about a common struggle with backsliding and this this tendency that all Christians can have to kind of drift uh, a little bit. Uh, I thought it seemed really relevant to see if we could could get him on the podcast to talk about his book and just this topic in general. And he's been kind enough to join us. Um, I'll uh, give a little bit of a of a of a blurt, Doctor Jones, and then feel free to add in. Uh, I, you know, you're the, I believe you're, you're the pastor, if I have my, all my facts correct, of Faith Reform Presbyterian Church, a PCA church in Vancouver. Uh, many, most of you probably know him from books that he's written. Uh, Knowing Christ is one of my personal favorites. Uh, there's another book called Knowing Sin, a Puritan Theology for Doctrine and Life, all fantastic books. And then, of course, the book, the brand new book that I mentioned just a few moments ago, uh, The Pilgrim's Regress, Guarding Against uh, Backsliding and Apostasy. Uh, but Without that's a little blurb, um, but Mark or do you prefer Mark or Doctor Jones? Do you have a preference? I definitely prefer Mark. Uh, I'm uh, when I go to America, it's, it's the the Doctor Jones thing is is kind of a shock because in Canada everyone just calls me Mark. I don't, most people don't even know you know that I'm a doctor, and they laugh sometimes if they find out. So that tells you <laughs> about me, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, has uh, any American given you the? You know, Indiana Jones treatment with short round of Dr. Jones. Yes, yes. I, I yeah. actually, one of my elders does that to me, actually. Okay. But, um, well, he sounds a, like a good man. Yeah, yeah he sounds like a good man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us, uh, you know, I feel, fill in the blanks from what I, what I didn't cover. Maybe tell the audience if they're not familiar uh, with you, maybe a little more about yourself and, and your ministry. Well, the most important, you know, is family life for me. I have a wife. Um, we've been married a long time. I don't know. I stopped counting, but I think it's over 20 years. Hmm. And four kids, uh, daughter, Katie. She's in Cape and Ray in uh, Germany, Bodenzehof, it's called, and having a great time. And actually, it's been uh, good teaching. You know, I'm, I, I've been really impressed with the study there. So if anyone's interested in Cape and Ray in Bodenzehof, I can highly hmm. recommend it. And then I have a son who's um, he's getting recruited by some NCAA teams for soccer. Uh, he's wow. just Western Michigan last week and going to Colgate this weekend. And so that's exciting. And there's a few other schools. So, And then twin boys who, who uh, are 13 and they go to Christian school. They all do. And um, yeah, so family life, church life is good. I actually pastor a church, but we have two sites now because we, mm. instead of doing a church plant, we started a site close to where I live and that's really blossomed and grown and it's been great. And then I drive from the 9am service into Vancouver for the 11am service. And then we kind of meet all together for the 5pm service at night. So it's a new way of doing things, but in Canada and our history, it just, it's working for us. So that's that. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Th thank you. So to jump into your book a little bit, uh, the Pilgrim's Regress. Let me just ask you, what what spurred you to write this book? Was it was it more the pastoral element, the theological element? What what brought the brought on the project? I think the COVID happened, you know, and that brought about some some 
issues that maybe were lying a a bit dormant in the church, but they were there. It's not like COVID all of a sudden caused people to, I think it just brought it to light. And so then all of a sudden people had more of an excuse in a sense to um, backslide. Uh, And so my desire was to say, okay, let's, let's try and tackle this issue because it's now affecting pastors and churches and people everywhere from what I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. We, we saw quite a bit of that as well at our church, um, where I pastor, but, uh, like you said, it was, it was a ripe opportunity. I think all those things were dormant and then COVID just presented itself and it was a perfect opportunity for people to just kind of fade out and fade into the background. Yeah. 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 I remember when, when we, when COVID was kind of subsiding and people started to come back to church, there was, there was an interesting, it was like, well, who's still around? You know, there was, yeah. you, you talked to all these churches. It was like, they were forced to be virtual for so long. We're like, we don't even know which, which, you know, you think about that now, a few years later, it's like, oh my goodness, what a terrible evidence of just shepherding and just the way it was managed. But you, you come back to church and it's like, well, are these people still around? Are they still invested? Where, where are they at? You know, there was a cleanup effect, right? You had to kind of t- take a, take audit or however you want to say it of, of where things were at that point in time. But yeah. Well, and you guys in, in Canada had things a bit more. Um, difficult than we we did stateside because obviously with the states everything was um, contingent on how each individual state managed it. But with Canada, I mean, literally we watched all that unfold from the comfort yeah. of our couches, and that was a whole mess too. Yeah, I still have PTSD. Uh, I know I, I shouldn't make light of PTSD because it's you know it's a real thing, but I have like somewhat pastoral PTSD. Let's call mm-hmm. it um, of just that whole nightmare and you know we did we did pretty well i'd say i mean every i i i'm not going to satisfy there's even people in my church who thought we should have rebelled a lot more than we did um we we would set up tarps outside our church and and preach and worship and all that stuff in cold cold weather with Mm -hmm. uh, i'm eater on my calf and the only place it was hitting was my calf and I was like burning my calf <laughs> and uh, you know our elders and deacons and people we tried to do as much as we possibly could to keep people meeting um, and you know we're in back parking lots of our church one time a couple times and you know we, we tried our best to um, obey you know the, the authorities but then our conscience dictated uh, you know so yeah we, we didn't quite get the, the news that you know, James Coates did in Alberta because it was a bit different there. But mm. um, yeah, it was tough. But I, I think, you know, we managed and we've come out of this now with our church, both sites, you know, thriving, absolutely thriving. So it, it's been it's been a blessing. Yeah. Praise God. Praise God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things, obviously, that we noticed right off the bat was uh, the title is an obvious nod to, to Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Um, so as you were, I actually have noticed that with a few different books you've written, right? I mean, knowing Christ is not a Packers knowing God. Um, so just as you were looking through forming the title, I'm assuming you got to pick it and that's what the editors were okay with, but what were you thinking through that as far as how did you come up with that? What was the, the rationale there? Well, I found out after I'd chosen the title, actually, that, C.S. Lewis had written a book called Pilgrim's Regress. Hmm. So, yeah, I put it on Facebook. Yeah, my forthcoming book, Pilgrim's Regress. And I'm like, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book. And they're nothing, they're not really anything alike. 
and you can do that with titles. But the subtitle makes it abundantly clear what you know sure. I'm trying to do. So I, it's just basically I I love Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, it's been cool to criticize it lately in certain circles, but I think overall it's still a <laughs> Stroll masterpiece, notwithstanding a few things you, you you would tighten up here and there, but that's I mean really. Well, he's um, a good old Baptist boy, so. Well, he is a good old. Although he had his, eyes, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Um, we'll have to we'll have to see what was going on there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, it was uh, just you know progress, regress, and and looking at backsliding. So there was not not a whole lot of thought, but um, there you have it. Yeah. Enough. Uh, it was clever, right? I actually always appreciate stuff like that. It's like, okay, um, you're giving a nod back to historical works that are just part and part of, are part and parcel to Christendom that most people have read. I mean, I, I think aside from the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress is one of the most best-selling yeah. books of all time, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, one of the other questions that we were having with this is, I, I, when you read the book, it's obviously very clear who the book is for, but um, as you were working through that, what was your intentionality there where you're looking at it and saying, okay, here's my target audience. Here, here are the people that I want to benefit from it most. Um, the thing that we were looking at within it is obviously there's there's much theological discussion, but you turn every time towards practical application. Gosh, I can't speak today. I'm sorry. Practical application uh, yeah. in, in a very pastoral sense too, especially towards the end. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, let's be realistic. People who are really backsliding and, and in a bad place are not super likely to pick up this book and read it from beginning to end, unless something sort of just pricks their conscience badly and mm -hmm. they ask for help and someone says, hey, here's a book that might. I think, you know, what I have in mind is actually pastors to read something and say, okay, how does this mesh with what I'm seeing and experiencing? And can I put some, you know, I'm putting some flesh on the bones of maybe what they're seeing and they, they can, um, you know, highlight some of these things in their own preaching ministry. So it's almost like um, getting to the problem with some people before it becomes a bigger problem is, is one way mm -hmm. of looking at it. Uh, we forget that, you know, like in our preaching, we're, we're keeping people from backsliding every Sunday. And if we can bring up some of these issues and warn people, that's a, a good start. Then you would, you know, trickle down to people in the pew who have loved ones, friends, those types. I have a lot of people who are reading this book because they want to be able to kind of figure out what's happened and um, mm. see things in uh, family members, friends' lives. And then there are some people who say, you know, this hit me hard. I've had a number of comments from even guys who um, I consider friends, close friends, and they said, you know, I, ne I needed this. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say they're like, big time backsiders, but they've said, Hey, I, I need this right now. And so there's, there's, I think there's different ways in which this, this book can approach people in different places. And, um, it's not a sort of, this is for pastors or this is for backsliders. It's, it can meet everyone's need at different places. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, and you touch on this in the book, I think on the issue about mortification of sin, I forget the exact name of the chapter, but, but you talk about the need for us to kill sin. And I, I think you make a great point because, you know, if, 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 if the book, even if you're, if you're listening to this listener and you're not, you wouldn't recognize yourself to be drastically backsliding. Right. Mm -hmm. But as Mark, you mentioned, you, you had friends who pricked their conscience, like, okay, well, there's some areas in my life I really need to work on here. Then, yeah. then that's wonderful because we, we need as Christians, we have to be committed to killing sin because if we let these things fester, if we start to make 
you know, tiny allowances, tiny concessions here and here. That's when things begin to grow and grow. And eventually you wake up one year, one day and you're like, how did I, yeah. how did I get here? You well, I, I've dealt with a number of people who've apostatized just over time. Um, not one of them would you ever question five years ago and say, yeah. hey, are you on the track to apostasy? Yeah. Right? Absolutely, yeah. 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 So, Mark, I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, good, good. About a, about a Facebook post you made about six to seven months ago. Oh, good. Joy. I, uh, I love <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's uh, the cancel culture coming out. Here we go. Yeah, no, yeah, no. <laughs> no, you were actually commenting on the book and I was thinking about our interview and I was uh, just looking at things that you had said and thinking about, you know, questions and discussion. And you made a comment about the the book and, and I just, it was a clarification because I found the, the, the post you made actually really interesting, but you said this, you said, uh, finishing up Pilgrim's Regress on backsliding and apostasy doesn't seem to be a topic addressed well in recent times probably because contemporary reform theology is still mildly antinomian in many respects. And I found yeah. that comment, like genuinely, I found that comment interesting. Yeah. Uh, nice and, by it. Yeah. So, yeah. But I wanted you, could you elaborate on that? Cause you know, you can only pull so much from a sure you know, I, a short Facebook post. Yeah. You know, I um, sometimes get just grumpy and say something online. And then I think, well, <laughs> don't, don't we all? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I, believe me, I've said worse, but, um, uh, I think so. Here's there's a number of ways that I would look at that. So there is a certain, even in reform circles, a certain bent towards, um, you know, like how grace has changed everything and, and justification and yeah. things like that. And, and, you know, with every good recovery of good doctrine, and I, it is a recovery of good doctrine in many respects. Uh, you know, I think overall theology is better now than it was, let's say, in the early 2000s, 90s, mm-hmm. just because of the sharing of stuff. However, that said, um, you know, I don't think reform people have quite grasped the real threat of apostasy because there's been so much emphasis on, you know, the five points and perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints, right? So, um, mm-hmm. you know, can apostasy happen? And and how real is apostasy? Is it just sort of like, oh, we just talk about it in terms of like obvious degenerates coming into church and leaving and they're just we call them apostates or um is it hit a little bit closer to home with people who really did experience we would say certain spiritual graces in terms of mm. um tasting the holy spirit which hebrews talks about and yes you know, the way they sing hymns and the way they pray and you know what they experienced was still real in a certain sense it's not like they were united to christ by faith in the way that the elect are but we don't have access to the decree we work on you know what we see in church and the judgment of charity so um that's one side of it is the apostasy side the other side is the backsliding is that you know can you really do spiritual harm to yourself as a christian and people all get uncomfortable with that you know they their idea of grace and and salvation all that doesn't want to make room for the fact that you know, when David sinned, we're told what he did displeased the Lord. And so we're yes. told in other places to please God. Children ple- will please God because of their obedience to their parents. And it's a constant emphasis in the New Testament, pleasing God. But displeasing God is also something that we have to face. And I think when we give up communion with God, when we take his benefits for granted, when we give up worship on purpose for silly excuses— we are displeasing the Lord, and we can bring harm upon ourselves. We, do, if we're truly engrafted into Christ, we won't 
forfeit our salvation. I, I genuinely believe that. But yeah. you can go through bad patches in life where things are really not good. Yep. Well, I think mm. of the book of Jude. So I, I preached through the book of Jude, gosh, maybe five years ago now. Um, but he gives a command uh, right in the beginning, obviously contend for the faith, but also later abide in the love of God. And mm. there's that strong tie to right the doctrines of grace in which we know that Christ holds us secure. We are to persevere, though, in the faith. And there's a simple reality where I think um, one of the things, and I'll say this as a guy who is firmly from a Calvinist, but we, I've witnessed over the years how many people want to look at the warning passages of Scripture in Hebrews and in Jude and in Peter and essentially just brush them off to the side and say, well, those aren't for Christians, right? They they want to make it all about the unbeliever, and that only applies to the unbeliever. But they've quite literally forgotten that those epistles are written for the church and to the church. Yeah. yeah. So they never quite take the warning seriously, and that's a dangerous spot to be. Yeah, and that's where we come back to the antinomianism. Is the antinomians, you know, they the idea of chastisement in Hebrews is is you know one antinomian in the 17th century said that was not for Christians, which mm. it doesn't mm. make any sense when you read the context. So, right, um, you know, we've got to deal with some of the sharper edges sometimes of of the New Testament, where these are you know it's not like threat after threat. There's promise after promise after promise, but then there's there's warnings and yes. even. Warnings designed like in First Corinthians ten, you know, there's a litany of Israel's history, and then you say, you know, take heed, you know, if you think you're standing firm, lest you fall. Um, we got to figure out how to make this all work in a way that doesn't just rob the warnings of any type of warning. Yeah, yeah. Well, well and I think that's one of the wonderful things about exegetical, exegetical preaching when it's done right, is it forces you to deal with those passages. Right, you can't just quite gloss over it with the systematic theology, you have to look at it and say, here's what it actually just says, guys. So yeah. we got to do something with it. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you, you also made a, a, a close tie in um, the book about the relationship between backsliding and apostasy. Uh, can you just give us a description of what you're thinking about when you are looking at that relationship? What's the difference? Obviously, um, we could pull a couple quotes and stuff such like that, but what, what would you look at and say, here's, um, I don't even know how to frame that question, but here's how the two relate and here's what a natural trajectory looks like. Yeah. And this is, so in a certain sense, I would argue, and I did argue in the book that, you know, Christians, true Christians elect grafted into Christ by faith, possessing that supernatural gift, they can backslide. They can't apostatize, but they can definitely backslide. Um, others who are not truly engrafted into Christ by faith and in union with him can apostatize, though the tricky part then is that, okay, we know this to be true, that backsliding can happen to Christians, but apostasy can't happen to Christians. The problem is, is that as pastors and as regular human beings, we, we don't have access to when someone starts going on a bad path going, oh, don't worry, they're on a bad path, but they're only going to backslide because we know, you know, we don't have the ability to have assurances that when someone stops going to church for months, oh, it's going to be fine because they're truly united to Christ, right? We have to go on what we observe 
and make judgments. And I, I'm a big believer in the judgment of charity to always extend the grace where we can. But then there comes a point where you say to someone, you are putting yourself in real spiritual harm right now. And if this pattern continues without any sign of repentance, you're going to find yourself an apostate, right? So um, now that person may over time come back, repent, and we say, okay, you know, they really were engrafted and they suffered a backsliding spiritual harm. But we have to be careful not to um, divorce them so much that we're pegging people without saying, hey, one does lead to the other. So when apostates, you know, become apostates, there was a period of backsliding usually. Hmm. And so our job as pastors, as, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, is to to exhort one another daily, um, to stir one another up to good works, and to to keep the, the the path which is narrow and leads to life. Keep people and each other on that path. Um, so yeah, it's it's a tricky balance, but I, I just think we have to be careful not to um, say that backsliding always leads to apostasy. But on the other hand, acknowledging that it can. Yeah. yeah. Well, you had a, a wonderful quote. Um, I'll just read it real quickly for our listeners. But you said the backslider is the person who has stopped beholding the glory of the Lord. And so his or her looks become less frequent. The apostate is a person who has never had a habitual sight of Christ and loved him for who he is. This person did not have the eyes of saving faith that are necessarily pulled to Christ because saving faith's greatest action, or attraction rather, is the one from whom we receive such a gift. So while there may be periods of infrequent looks, i.e. backsliding, saving faith will always return to the habitual sight of him that characterizes true children of God. Hmm. I, I thought that captured it rather wonderfully. There's always that propensity we have as sinners, right? Where we yeah. can lose sight of Christ and lose sight of what actually we're called to. Um, but the true Christian will always look back to Christ. They might be yeah. in the deepest, darkest pit of their life, yeah. but inevitably the spirit will work in conjunction with the word of God and bring them to behold Christ and his glory once more. Yeah. Thanks for reading. I, th I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way. And, you know, if it does too bad, um, but <laughs> sometimes I, I go, hey, you know, that's actually pretty good. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> I have, I have, Foster syndrome, you know, I'm like, I, I shouldn't be writing these books. I'm not very intelligent and I'm, I just don't kind of think of myself. And then I read something like, oh, actually, that's not bad, Mark. You know, like, I got to think about that <laughs> myself today. You know, like you yeah. read that and I'm going, yeah, Mark, like you've got to have those looks to Christ more frequent. So, um, you know, one of these days I'm going to read one of my books. Um, and so I'm thankful you pointed that quote out. It's very John Owen-ish, uh, if I may put it that way. Hey, you know, I, I, I exactly laugh because... Literally right before we got on with you, I was telling Jack, I'm like, I saw a Facebook memory popped up that was like 10 years old. And I read it, obviously something I had posted a while. I'm like, that's not half bad, Grayson. Like, good job, <laughs> little guy. <laughs> yeah, it's not often you look at something you posted on social media 10 years ago and are like, I'm glad I said that. That's <laughs> yeah, not purely cringe. <laughs> wow. It's the opposite. <laughs> yeah. So... Getting into the the more sober ground, then, um, obviously, towards the end of the book, you touch on the irrecoverable state of apostasy. I actually I thought you handled that chapter very very well. Yeah, it was um, good. One of the things I enjoyed about it, and and this has been a discussion that we've had as as just admins for the page, but also 
in a broader group of friends is that there is a, obviously when apostasy is genuine and it has sunk in, um, as the author of Hebrews puts it, it is impossible for them to come back, right? There's this point of no return, a tipping point, so to speak. Um, what would you say for one are, are just signs that has actually transpired or happened? Yeah. So, um, I think for me, you know, what, one of the, the points is that Hebrews establishes that as a reality. So it is actually impossible. Um, for me, one of the major signs is uh, the hardness of heart where there is l literally no sorrow, repentance. There's no grief and hatred of, of sin. In fact, it becomes, there's almost a flip that happens. So for Christians, one of the great marks of a Christian is sorrow for sin, repentance. Um, you know, it's in apostolic preaching, faith and repentance, right? So I think we could agree on that. What happens with apostasy is you flip the major constituent parts of the Christian faith. So instead of faith, you know, there's unbelief. And instead of sorrow, there's a kind of proud, boasting, um, pride. Mm -hmm. Those things become part of the, the life of the apostate where there's no sorrow. But actually, it's not only just a neutral state, it's an active opposition. Mm -hmm. And, uh, pride in their new lifestyle and things like that that's where you know things have really really tanked is is when it flips so that's one way i i i would say pastorally we would say this person may be maybe and still we always have to qualify they may be in an irrecoverable state but again human nature be what it is and human beings being complex and god's ways being mysterious and higher than our ways we do hold out that you know there can be a um, a time when someone repents, but there may also be a time where God actually hardens them. And that's mm -hmm. the sign of God's hardening and judgment as they start to boast in their sin rather than repent. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a good point. I'm glad you said that because I think, um, I, I think it can be dangerous as us as Christians, elders, pastors to just decide, well, clearly this person is in the irrecoverable state, you know, let me wash my hands and walk yeah, away, yeah. right? Yeah. I think there's an element of we don't know. We trust we trust the, the sovereignty of God and salvation. We trust the the glory of Christ and God to accomplish that which He set out to do. And we preach the gospel and and pray, call people to repentance and pray that God would awaken hearts. But but yeah, it is it is a very sobering thing in Scripture that that you, you touched on this earlier. It just doesn't get talked about a lot. Yeah. There is. People can can end up in an irrecoverable state. It is impossible. And that is a scary thing. I mean, it's a really scary thing. And oh, it's terrifying. You think about it is. It's absolutely terrifying. You think about because we've all been in seasons of backsliding and we drift away, and it's just like praise be to Christ that He pulls me back to Him. That He pulls me back to Him. That I continue to see the glory of Christ as the primary thing. And like you mentioned, sorrow and repentance that Christ continually pulls and tugs on my heart back. Because yeah. man, what a scary, scary thing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Again, I think of Jude. I'm going to pull up the passage, but um, at the very end of the letter, right, he goes through this whole litany of things that these guys have done. They're they're false sheep. They're destroying the flock. They've, I mean, reviled angelic majesties. All these different things that he's talking about apostasy, and how he closes the letter is not just by simply saying. Um, you know, keeping yourselves in the love of God, 
but looking at those who have fallen away and says, have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So there's just this reality of that, that tension, right? They are on the brink of hell. Um, and yet the job of the, the Christian, the one who is strong in Christ is to bring them back. But then he gives such a wonderfully pastoral closing to the entire letter with a doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy to the only God, our savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually, you know, what's interesting is that quote is on the, below the dedication um, in my uh, book. And it came to me, actually, Richard Gaffin had, had read the book and he provided a commendation and he spoke, you know, said some really kind things about the book. And again, Richard Gaffin to me is a, a legend, a hero uh, of the faith for me, a godly man. And yet even he was like, you know, this was good for my soul. And I thought, oh my goodness, if Richard Gaffin needed it, you know, good so I, I don't think I'm betraying any confidence when he says that. I mean, you know, any I would hope any godly person would say the book has yeah. something good for their soul. But then he said, hey, you know, I didn't see this quote from Jude in here. You may want to <laughs> put it in. And he he actually sent that to me. And so I said to the at the guys at PNR, I said, hey, we need to get this in. I can't believe I missed it. So mm. I'm glad you pointed that out because Gaffin also pointed that out. And I said, oh, yeah, that's beautiful. We have to get that in. And it's right at the front, right at the beginning of the book. Yeah. Yep. That's great. Uh, Grayson, did you have a, I think I have a note here that you wanted to ask, you had a question about the Greek in, in that, in that uh, section on the irrecoverable um, state. I mean, we could touch on it, but I mean, he pretty much already did. So okay. that okay. was one of the things where the, just the finality of it, right? There's that point of no return, but yeah, yeah. most okay. people don't care about the Greek. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Must... Again, I, I appreciated that section a lot. Um, and John, if John MacArthur's preaching, then definitely the Greek comes out. There um, you go. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lowly Presbyterian. I just speak in English and then Latin phrases uh, <laughs> every now and then. Well, so you get the, sure. the classical ed, right? Well, my congregation needs to know that I am somewhat educated. So, you know, you throw a few Latin phrases in and they go, okay, you know, we can't do that. So I guess we should keep them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got to hit the yearly quota, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As he goes up for review, it's like you had at least twelve quotes from Latin. So, well done, Mark. Yeah, I just like when they nod, like, "Yeah, okay." You know, um, my last sermon title was "Summa Cum Laude," and uh, it was just about Daniel having so much wisdom, right? So, um, yeah, it's it's you 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 just always say something in your sermon or put something in your sermon that um, the average listener can't know or understand, just to keep your job. Yeah. Like well, the the Hebrew here says this. Yeah. And, uh, nobody in this well, room knows Hebrew, but I'm going to go there. So yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> most people who say Greek and Hebrew in sermons, typically, I don't really feel like they're making a very valid point. Now we're going off topic, but it, it's I I generally think we should stay away from languages and yeah. And well, I mean, so much of it is there was that classic meme that floated around for a long time. It's like the the word agape means love, and oh, yeah. in you know the the Greek is clear that it means love <laughs> brilliant um so one question I, I you use the phrase and kind of later in the book uh use the the hopeful phrase weak grace yeah and i and i'd never heard that before but as i read through the book it made it made sense but i really liked it C could you explain maybe for the listener 
what weak grace is and how that idea can be of a great encouragement to maybe a Christian or someone who's listening to this who feels, you know, maybe I'm backsliding a little bit. What, what is weak grace and what does it mean for the believer? It was reading Stephen Charnock, uh, you know, gr- uh, Weak Grace Proves Victorious or something. I forget the, the title. I, was, I really enjoy Stephen Charnock lately, the last few years. I, um, you know, I, I edited his uh, Existence and Attributes of God for Crossway, but mm. uh, I actually read his other discourses because he's, he's actually so incisive and clear. It's penetrating stuff. And he had this discourse, I think, on this sort of idea. And I thought, you know what? The Puritans get a bad rap for, you know, introspective, like causing people to doubt. There's, and I said, this is nonsense because mm-hmm. Goodwin wrote The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth, which Dane Ortland basically, you know, kind of did a, a and, and he had some other things to say, but he basically used that for his Gentle and Lowly book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, and everyone goes, oh, this is so good for assurance. And I says, yeah, that's, that's Goodwin. So, and, and you know, no, that's great. I'm glad Dane did that. But, um, Charnock also has this, this discourse on weak grace proving choice. And he talks about how, you know, if you even have like the seed of faith, the seed of grace, and, you know, despite the many struggles and failures and, and sins is that it will ultimately prove victorious in the end. And that there is such a thing as what's called a weak Christian. Um, they're still Christians and the degrees of sanctification are not alike in all, right? Because it's a work of God, not an act of God. And justification is the same in yeah. all, but you know, yeah. there are people who, who, who do struggle along for various reasons. Um, as a pastor, you see people in your church who you're just like, somehow they're hanging on and they come and they, they don't make great boasts about who they are and they, they will admit they struggle and, Yet they they're there at the end, and and God mm. saves them. And, mm. and then there are people who are apparent, apparently particularly godly, and they really are godly. They you know they're fervent in their prayer. They're very good in serving the church, and um, you know you see all sorts of different types of Christians. And I think we have to recognize that even grace in a weak faith Christian is going to persevere to the end, and yeah. that's the glory of the gospel. Um, and that's kind of the one of the reasons I wrote this book is because. Backsliding does happen to some more than others. Some people go through life and maybe don't have huge periods of backsliding. Others do. Um, you know, Christian life is complex and varied and, and affects everyone differently. And yeah. so I like mm-hmm. the idea that someone can be struggling with their faith, but still know that it will persevere to the end. Yeah. Yeah. Really uh, good. It, it can I read a, you a, a Oh, go ahead. No, Jason. go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say that was uh, an encouraging (laughs) for talking over each other. Sorry, it was an encouraging chapter in many ways because you also alluded to uh, Sibs with the bruised reed too. Yeah, yeah. Again, another Puritan who's you know doing all this comfort. So, you know, one of these days I'm going to have to figure out um, you know why people feel it's so easy to 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 talk about the Puritan so negatively with assurance because I've not found that. Same here. Uh, you know, they, the Puritans haven't said anything in their works that I haven't seen in the New Testament that, you know, is, is any less um, sort of like, hey, shape up at times. So I think people yeah. just have no real acquaintance with the, the teachings of Scripture that they find the Puritans. It's easy to criticize them, but hmm. just echoing a lot of the themes we find in Scripture, both positively and, um, you know, in quotes, negatively. Yeah, absolutely. Let me let me read your quote, and you can tell me if this is a good quote or not. It's from yeah. your book. <laughs> yeah, look what I've done. <laughs> you can tell me. I thought this is a fantastic quote, by the way, Mark. You said, uh, on this subject of weak grace, you said, grace 
while a gift from God can be oppressed or overtopped, by sin like a fountain obscured by a flood, yet once the flood subsides, the fountain bubbles up again in clear sight. It never stopped working, but was concealed by the floodwaters. Grace, like that fountain, will always bubble up and rise again. Though obscured by sin for a time, this occurs because of the uh, indissoluble union with the fountain of life, Jesus Christ. His eternal and immeasurable reservoir of springs can fill innumerable people without any loss, so he will always provide for us streams of living water. Yeah, that, I, I remember reading something about that in Charnock with the fountain and, and the, you know, the flood comes over and stuff. And so I kind of reworked it. And so I can't take full, like, super credit for, you know, but I remember that. I think I remember that from Charnock. And um, it is, it, yeah, that is, you know, the hope we have is, is faith is a supernatural gift from God. And mm. because it's supernatural and not natural, it can't be lost. Amen. Uh, and it's God's gift. And if it if if it's as good a gift as we believe it to be, and it is, um, what kind of gift would it be if it didn't persevere? Yes. Amen. Amen. Yeah. So along those lines, then we have a, a number of people that listen to this, or people that have tuned on the page and stuff like that. Um, We've gotten all sorts of different messages from people over time where some are concerned about backsliding, some are concerned they've literally shipwrecked their faith. Mm-hmm. If you were to speak to one of those people today, what mm-hmm. advice would you give them? Pastorally, um, scripturally, anything like that? Good question. I think, firstly, I always assure people who are concerned that that's good. Like, if you're not concerned, that's bad. So yeah. we have to always merge them from the beginning. Hey, this is great. You're concerned. Now, I'm not saying, oh, because you're concerned, you're fine. Leave. No, maybe you're concerned and your concern is, is is like a good concern. Like you really do have a problem. So we have to fix it. You don't go to a doctor and say, I'm concerned about this. And he's like, oh, well, I'm glad you understand you've got a problem. See you, right? So it's right. good they've gone with the concern, but we've got to fix it too. And I think for me, I'm 100% convinced of this at this point in my ministry that there's no silver bullet approach to people in these types of situations. It's it's holistic in the sense that the you know, Christian faith is like an ecosystem, and and if if there's no air, trees will die. If there's if there's no trees, there's no oxygen being produced for like all of those things work together. And I think when someone's in a, in a bad state, you've got to reorient them towards a faithful local ministry and all that that should offer so do we need to look at christ yeah where does that start in the preaching of the word the sacraments the, you know the lord's supper um do we need to be encouraged yeah fellowship with people um you know start showing hospitality and and you know you've got to rework all of the elements of the christian life there's not one thing that's designed to just preserve you you know you don't just say oh, i'm yeah. going to look to my justification every day and you know go navel gaze and say that's, that's work yeah look, look consider your justification every day absolutely but you've got to stir one another up you've got to pray with people you've got to sing hymns you've got to sing psalms you've got to do all these things so try to make all of the little aspects of the christian life work together to help and you'll find that the little aspects become big aspects in the sense that they are reinforcing one another. So it's not a simplistic approach to someone struggling. They've got to kind of rework everything in a sense to improve in lots of little areas. 
is, is my, yeah. my well it's, yeah in a, in a light turn what what go ahead sorry i was just going to say um it's one of those ordinary aspects of the christian faith that are it's not flashy um it's not going to get the shares or the likes or anything else it's unsexy everybody's going to look at it though and there is going to be that aspect where you know philippians 4 you talk about uh, Paul talks about this reality of putting into practice all the things that they have learned from the apostles, but also dwelling upon the lovely aspects of the character of God, the nature of God, and uh, his word. Yeah. And then the peace of God will be with you. Um, mm -hmm. So much of it is we want to short circuit and get right to the peace, but there's those ordinary means of grace that God gives us in and through the local church, but also through fellow believers and just your basic spiritual disciplines. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of, and I think this is maybe a North American problem more than anything, but, and I wouldn't say a problem, but the sort of weekend marriage retreats, you know, you've got a bad marriage and you go away for this weekend and you figure out all this stuff and you come back and it's like, yeah, you know, we solved our marriage problems. And I'm like, okay, I believe in God's grace, those weekends can maybe reignite something. But if you don't, you know, get all those other little pieces working together and starting to, you know, it's just going to burn out. It's like someone who goes yeah. away on a short-term mission trip and comes back on fire for the Lord. And then a week later, they're in a shopping mall spending too much money on stuff. They were appalled at, you know, so you, that's why I think the little things have got to be constantly improving because the, the big shocks to the system um, maybe can help a bit, but, Ultimately, it's the, as we talk about the slow plodding along week after week in the context of the local church, faithful yeah. preaching, fellowship. That's really what works in my mind. Yeah. 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 Well said. You're, you're, you're echoing things that we've, we have, in fact, our, our entire first season was, was okay. primarily about that. We did a whole season oh, of podcast on the church and it was, okay. if I were to sum it up in a sentence, you, you, you covered it pretty well. Okay. So I completely agree with you there. Um, as we kind of wrap up here, I know we want to be mindful of your time, Mark, but uh, I also know we have a lot of pastors and elders who listen, listen to this. Um, what advice would you have for them as they consider their flock? Uh, if they consider, uh, the, you know, the nature of shepherding someone who's backsliding and or maybe drifting into apostasy, any, any words of encouragement or advice for, for those folks? Uh, so for, you know, I think for pastors who, um, or at least conscious of this issue, I really praise God for. You know, they're, they're real pastors. They're concerned about the flock. They they see people drifting. They see, uh, and they want to deal with it. And so, you know, the, the encouragement is that if you are aware of this, that's an encouragement already. You know, you, you sh don't be presumptuous with your flock mm. and take things for granted. And I think faithful pastors, one of their chief marks is that they, you know, they care about the needs of the sheep. So, I, I think, you know, they've got to just be aware that these are real issues. And once they are, there are real solutions offered by God. He doesn't leave us to ourselves to figure this out, but his word instructs us in ways that will help recover these these straying sheep, the lost sheep, etc. So um, remember that these are real issues, but God has provided many solutions for us to navigate with our preaching, teaching, um, praying, and all, all of those things. We're not left to ourselves. So um, be encouraged, but also be realistic that these things are happening and will happen. And you're, as long as you're a pastor, you're going to be dealing with this. It doesn't matter who you are. Um, right. But yeah. God is with us. Amen. Amen. Well, Mark, thank you. Thank you so much for taking 
a little bit of time out of your schedule to chat with us and and specifically talk about the issue of you know your book obviously but the issue primarily of backsliding and apostasy this was fantastic thank you yes i uh, thank you guys for being concerned to talk about these issues so i hope uh, hope you keep up the good work yeah thank, well, thank you. you brother um one one final note uh again we, we're talking about the pilgrim's regress guarding against backsliding and apostasy in the christian life i'll put a link in the uh, show notes for the podcast for the book if you're interested in finding that it's put out by presbyterian reform publishing uh it's out now you can go get it great book uh uh, Grayson and I both read it beforehand and give it two thumbs up, five yep. stars, whatever, whatever uh, rating so system you prefer. Thank you. you know, I, yeah. I actually, um, I can tell you, like, I can tell when people haven't read any of the book and when they've at least read some or all. And so I, I appreciate that you've also taken time to, 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 to read, read because, um, <laughs> it's not a guarantee anymore. Yeah. Well, yeah. it was. When I, when I saw it come up, uh, I thought that's a book. Cause I, I, I thought first of all, well, that'd be nice to be useful for the podcast. And then I read it and, and to, to an encouragement to you, it was beneficial to me, especially in the second half of the book. It, it made me really step back and, and just, you know, I don't, as a, as a Christian, I don't often think of myself as backsliding or being at risk of apostasy. And then, you know, you, you, you realize as you, as you're reading through the book, or at least I did, how, no one thinks of themselves that way. Like no, no one goes, yep. people that are, that are apostatizing don't wake up one day and just say, I'm yeah, going to yeah. go apostatize. Yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. I hope not. Uh, maybe somebody does. I don't know. But, but you know, you think about that and you're like, man, it is, it is such a scary reality for, for the believers. And, you know, you read through, you list out all these different uh, sin patterns and different things uh, that in the first half of the book that really lead to, to these things. And you start, you know, do some heart introspection. You're like, wow, these are things that I really need to clean up in my life because this is a scary reality and there's, there's eternal weight to it. Like this is not trivial matters. This is well, eternal it, it, significance. So. It adds so much more dimension, I think, to uh, Owens when he says, be killing sin or will be killing you. There's just that constant reality in the life of the Christian where if we're not taking sin seriously um, and putting it to death on a daily basis, we're going to wind up in a place we never thought we would be. Um, But there is a a trajectory we're all on. The question is just simply, are we doing it in a manner in where we can, as you said in the very beginning, be pleasing to the Lord? Or are we making small concessions here or there that will wind up in these grand sins we never thought we would find ourselves in? Yeah. Good job, guys. Well done. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening to The Chorus and the Chaos. Uh, This has been Jack Grayson and and, uh, Dr. I'll I'll say it here. (laughs) Dr. Mark Jones. Thanks so much. (laughs) 